welcome everybody to another Meet the Author with our community co-host, uh, Gary Wong. Gary, why don't you show share with us who are we having today to speak with us? Thanks, Meryl. Well, I'm really, really happy to introduce Jill Kernick. Jill has written a book, Catastrophe and Systemic Change, Learning from the Grenfell Tower Fire and Other Disasters. So welcome, Jill, to our show. Thanks so much. Hi, Gary, and hi, everybody. Great. Well, the Grenfell Tower Fire occurred way back in June 14th, 2017. You wrote your book four years later. And in your, in your introduction, um, it was a book, you said it was a book that you wish you never had to write. So, but, but thank you for finding the courage within to do so. Would you like to share maybe some of your feelings at the very start about writing that book? I think there's um, both a personal and a professional interests that led to me writing the book. Um, and professionally, I've worked as a consultant in high hazard industries and specifically on safety, culture and leadership and the prevention of catastrophic events is a particular interest of mine. And then between 2011 and 2014, so not at the time of the fire, but before the fire, I lived on the 21st floor of Grenfell mm -hmm. Tower. Um, and seven of my neighbors died in the, in the fire. I moved out in 2014 into an apartment really nearby and can see the building from my window. So wow. I saw the fire and see it every day. I mean, it's right there in front of me right now. So that is my personal connection. And I promised, um, as I watched the fire, I remember in the afternoon, I remember exactly the moment, you know, there's these specific moments and memories that are very visual and visceral for me. And I remember the moment I was sitting on the balcony, I was talk actually talking to a BBC journalist and I turned to him and said, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure we learn, um, which is my professional interest. But that didn't kind of go how I thought it would go, hence the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, from the purpose of the book, you you thought about that and you then you said that you wanted to use the details of the Grandfield fire as a case study to consider two really pressing questions that you wanted to address. What were those two questions? So I wanted to understand really why we don't learn. So mm -hmm. as with all disasters, you know, we and we do now have a fair amount of understanding of what went wrong technically and also some of the socio-technical elements um, about what happened. But as with many disasters when you dig into them you see there were previous disasters that we didn't learn from etc 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 so i realized that if we're to learn we have to first understand why we don't learn because otherwise we'll just identify all of these lessons and not actually learn them um mm -hmm. so it felt important to me almost as a kind of precondition to learning is to answer the question why don't we learn and then also what would it take to enable real systemic change? Right. So yeah. who, do you, who do you think would be really interested in reading your book? Well, I hope anybody actually. <laughs> I think it's a really, it's, it's intended for a very wide audience. Obviously people that are interested in Grenfell, um, but then also 
policy because it looks at it systemically. Mm. So also policymakers, people interested in um, health and safety, obviously prevention of catastrophic um, um, events, risk management, leadership change. So I think it has quite a broad appeal. And then obviously specific sectors are housing and the built environment. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, when I read the book, something that struck me was something we call the safety sphere. And what I've just put on my background, if for people can see that, is Todd Conklin's drawing of the safety sphere. And you can see, if you look at it closely, we have the regulators and we have elected officials down at the blunt end. They have the highest influence on our systems. But at the sharp end, where mostly, I think most of us deal with, that's where the workers are. These are the people that, of course, feel the, the pointy end of the spear, and they're the ones that are involved in the accidents that do occur. So from your research and experience, Jill, what are your thoughts about the blunt end, where these regulators and elected officials reside? Well, I think, you know, sometimes I kind of think about my whole journey and research as a loss of hope and then a search for hope. And I, I think one of the kind of myths that got busted for me was the, um, uh, the wisdom of relying on governments and regulators and the people that pre-Grainful I thought were keeping me safe to affect change and that's not um against individuals i'm not i'm not uh, i'm not speaking against any individual politician or any regulator or any party it's just systemically those systems are fundamentally flawed and are increasingly vulnerable in increasingly complex times so i think there's the, you know the myth that regulations keep us safe needs to be very much busted. And I think particularly, as I said, as the world gets more complex, because regulations are the tool that are mostly used by regulators and those by, by default are reactive in nature. Yeah, and I, th I think as we watch the COVID-19 pandemic unfold, I suspect a lot of those things that you saw confirmed your view of what was happening. Well, in fact, when I started, so I was asked to write the book and I started writing the book just at the time that lockdown happened. And the original focus was just on Grainful. But then I'd, I'd kind of written, I think I'd spent, I'd gone away for a week writing. And then I, a couple of weeks later, we were meant to be on holiday, but we couldn't go because of lockdown. It was the first lockdown. And I just saw the same things I was writing about, about Grainful happening with COVID. So then I changed it to learning from Grainful and other disasters and took a much broader perspective. Yeah. I think one of the things that we talk about in complexity, and we use the word called entanglement, everything is so messy. Yeah. It, you know, there is coherence, but we try to want to separate things apart. And that's what we like to do as reductionists. You know, take things apart, fix them and put them back together and then wonder why they don't work. So I understand that if you're at the blunt end, you have political agendas and you have this thing called power. So can you maybe just share a bit about how messy is that? 
Well, I don't think we think enough about power. Uh, I, I say at the, at the sharp end, I don't think we think enough about power and the impact that that has on um, decisions that impact safety or or that promote catastrophic events. I mean, in Greenfield, there's horrific things. So the first half of the book, I look at what we knew at the time had happened in Greenfield and you know, companies knowingly sold flammable materials because mm -hmm. the regulations in the UK permitted that. So you see kind of like behaviours um, at, at the blunt end, both of regulators and, and industry, you know, product supply further up the supply chain, where people are making, um, in my view, unethical decisions mm -hmm. that have massive impact on, on people. And I mean, in terms of cladding fires, we see that as a global phenomena. It's not just a UK phenomena. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's look at what you wrote in the book. Uh, the first half of chapter three, and the chapter three heading is complexity, safety, and systemic change. So why don't we start by just clarifying, what do we, what do we mean by systemic change? So I distinguish between what I call piecemeal and systemic change, and and piecemeal change is looking at solving a particular in a, a particular issue. So we want to fix fire doors um, or something, some part of the system, and it assumes it comes from this mindset of this controllable, predictable world. So if I do X, Y is going to happen. Um, we focus on technical solutions and the leadership style tends to be quite bureaucratic and command and control. And then I distinguish that with what I call systemic and systemic for me is anything that is at the level of systems. So involves something at the level of systems. What's required is shifting the conditions that are holding a problem in place. Um, and I think the inquiry question becomes what is the system perfectly designed for? So, yeah. which is a very different, that's a, a very different way of looking at the world. And it comes from a complex emergent view of the world. Um, and what you're trying to do with your access to change is what I call, or not what I call actually, what a um, paper that really influenced me greatly calls is making the water visible. So grappling with the messy kaleidoscope, what was the word that you use, the entanglement? So, yeah. you know, actually grappling with that and seeing what you can see when you step back and look at it. Um, and what you're trying to do is disrupt the status quo. So often we think of disruption as a negative thing, but from a systems change perspective or from a complexity perspective, change requires disruption. So we're trying to disrupt. The, the, the point is you have no idea what the impact of the disruption will be, whether it's going to no. be positive or negative, but what, what your access to change is actually disrupting. Um, I also talk, I, I should say, because I, I talk a lot about um, one of the things that changed for me was my notion of what could disrupt. So, you know, the disruptive power of kindness, for example. And I, th I think we don't often think about disruption in a... Um, a nurturing positive sense. And I think the world could do with a lot of disruption of that nature, frankly, right now. In your book, you, you mentioned a few things that really resonated with me about systemic con conditions that are holding problems in place, such as we don't seem to listen very well. To, no. In the Grenfell case, we didn't listen to the residents, the care workers, the NHA staff, and these are all folks down at the sharp end. 
And you know, and you already talked about the over-reliance on regulations and the so-called ivory tower expertise. But then I would I think now about how those deep unconscious bias and beliefs and assumptions that we all as individuals and collectively hold. There's a lot of stuff there that you know that uh, we really need to see. And I'd love that idea of that, you know, the system that you got is perfect to give you the results that you're getting. Because that just like yeah, it's like, it's like, oh my God, is that, I designed it that way? Well, yeah. that's, that's, so what are you going to change? And as you say, and we don't know what the concepts are going to be when we change that. Yeah. Okay. I think it's also, um, in terms of the silencing of voices. So I think, you know, we see that mm -hmm. in safety a lot in, in terms of not listening to the front line. But I think what I became very interested in is what are the narratives that we use to silence mm. others? So in the case of Greenfall, it was dismissing residents by calling them either arrogant or rebels. So there's the languaging um, and the creation of narratives that justifies the silencing, which I think gives us, us an access to perhaps understanding something and yeah. listening very carefully to what people are saying that justifies, I mean, we all do it, you know, justifies that some voices yeah. just aren't heard or don't yeah. count. Yeah, you did. You mentioned already about uh, making the water visible, which is the second half of your chapter three heading. So how would expanding on that? What do you mean by making the water visible? So I think what I was trying to do in, in, in the book is, as I said, understand why we don't learn. And I want to create a, a systemic view of that. So to look from a systems perspective is literally to step back and see the system itself. Um, as some of you will be aware of the fish parable where there's two fish swimming along and one fish says to, to the other, how's the water? And the response is, what's water? So it's, you know, how do we step back and make the water visible? And that comes from a, the, the making the water visible, as I said, it comes from a paper, and I can't remember, Karnia, I think it's Karnia um, and Senge. Many people will know Peter Senge, who's one of the original um, systems thinkers. And it was applied to creating change at a social level. Um, and that really influenced me a lot is this, this notion of, making the water visible and that's what I attempt to do in the book is literally it's not intended to solve anything it's it's intended to make transparent why we don't learn and how we might disrupt the status quo yeah so it's fine do you have any um questions um from the people um if you have a question just raise your hand we'll see it and then um, we'll open up your mic and let you um offer an opinion or ask a question. Um, is anything there yet? Not yet, not mm -hmm. yet. One question that um, is coming to my mind is how can we break these narratives? Mm, yeah, we'll get into that, definitely, yeah, right. And Linda, I see that you raised the question. Um, maybe looking at the positive side of writing this book. So, hi, maybe. Linda. <laughs> So Linda and I know each other from social media, so it's great to see you in knitting socks and Linda sharing her story right while she was reading my book. Um, in terms of positive, actually, I, I would say one of the things is I have um, become connected to a lot of people that are committed to change and a lot of them actually through social media. I mean, I was completely not active on social media 
before Greenfall. I liked my privacy and my very quiet life. Um, and I joined Twitter uh, on the day of the fire because I thought if you're going to change, you have to have influence and having a public voice becomes something a little bit different. So I think one of the positive things is, is the connections and the people who are all in our different and unique ways. And I, I imagine everyone on this call has um, is here because they're committed to change in some way or another. And it's kind of like that beautiful kaleidoscope of humanity <laughs> planting seeds of change. Well, who knows? Maybe you'll be writing a second book on catastrophe, systemic change, and we'll talk. And you'll talk about social media and Twitter and how Maybe. all those things Maybe I don't know. Changed. Writing a book is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite sure. <laughs> well, I really love how you describe the characteristics characteristics of complexity and complex systems, which um, <clears throat> many of our Meet the Authors show authors have also talked about, such as, as emergence unpredictability, ambiguity, resilience, and interacting elements with no central control. And the whole course we're talking about being adaptive and also co-evolving. So I also must admit, I, I'm glad that you included a small piece on the Kinevin framework and if anybody knows me, uh, um, that's the area that I deal with the Kinevin framework. And it's all about trying to understand why, why we failed to learn and how do we make sense of it? So for your analysis in your book, you used an inquiry-based methodology, and then these form threads for subsequent chapters. So can you just give us maybe the essence of each of those chapters? Yeah, so, so I used um, methodologically, if you want to say, and frankly, this is kind of like in hindsight more than I sat down and wrote up this nice method statement, but I, um, I used an inquiry-based method, so it was very much um, the true art of inquiry, which starts with uh, um, the notion of I know that I know nothing, So, which I label inquiry as opposed to kind of like more formal inquiry. So it was very much an inquiry-based process. And then secondly, sense-making. So the notion of, of, of sense-making as a valid form of analysis, which um, does it, importantly doesn't require neutrality because I'm, I'm not neutral and I'll never pretend I'm neutral in regard particularly to this event. So I use that methodologically. And then I looked at, um, I created a model with, with four, um, blocks, you know, foundational elements, so kind of our typical policies, procedures, etc. And then behavioral elements are so what we do to both prevent and then respond to incidents. And then I looked at relationships because it felt to me often that's not looked at and particularly power um, and, and those complex relational issues. And then also I looked contextually. So what are the contextual elements, our mindsets, culture, um, deeply held beliefs, assumptions, et cetera, and how those mesh things. And then under each of those, I looked at what are the, the myths. So like regulations keep us safe. So what are the myths? Um, I then explored what are kind of commonly known issues, um, looked at specific learnings from Grenfell, and then answered the two questions, why don't we learn and what um, what could we do to enable systemic change based on that analysis? So I did that around all four quadrants. Yeah, and I really, that, that made the book, honestly, for me, really easy to follow because I got into your flow. 
And for example, in chapter four, you started off talking about foundational structures. Yeah. Then you talked about, here's the myth. And I always liked hearing that. Okay, so what am I holding on to? Like, oh my God, that's not really true. It's a myth. Yeah. So why don't we yeah. start with chapter four? What did you discover in chapter four? So the myths are of, of chapter four, so the foundational ones are that regulations guarantee safe outcomes. So that that myth that mm -hmm. I think a lot of people hold on to. Um, and then some of the key issues and challenges are around, and I, this was specifically UK based, is the vulnerabilities of the regulatory system and, and delivery mechanisms itself. So that was a big learning for me to discover. Um, and then in terms of lessons from Grenfell, there are multiple buildings with unsafe cladding on, which is a function of um, ambiguity or uncertainty in regulations. So why we don't learn is failures in governance and accountability. And then the opportunity to disrupt is actually um, the ability, uh, increasing our ability and competence to deal with complexity and ambiguity, which might seem not logical, but that is um, what I think the opportunity to disrupt is. I just see there's a question from Tom. So before I, I, I talk through, but I have to read it because it's quite long. So how can protect practitioners at the level of systems change. But why don't we bring Tom on? And, and yeah, just Tom, can you, can you ask yeah. me because I, it'll be much easier. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Tom, open up your mic. Tom. No, Tom's not there. Real change. Oh, we lost him. Did we lose him? Um, so subtle oh. attention span is limited, yeah. Okay, so maybe we'll have to, sorry about that. Um, I guess maybe you have to read that, Jill. And so I'm Yeah, no, I think so. I think it's how can practitioners at the level of system change, such as regulators, politician, overcome the mm -hmm. time scale of tension. So real change, uh, system change in complex environments seems to take many years, but societal attention span is limited. So for example, in the case of Grenfell, <laughs> when our six years are next month after the fire and the inquiry is yet to publish its final report. Um, and obviously public interest diminishes. And I think this tension is really interesting. Um, and I don't have an answer, but part of what I wonder is if there isn't something we could do to be faster in inquiries. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't really have an answer because the inquiries really dug into an enormous amount of depth and detail but it takes such a long time. And I think from a political perspective, if I put a cynical hat on, um, I think that drag in time means politicians are no longer faced with the pressure to change. So I, I think, you know, this, this notion of political will, which is driven by social narratives and remaining, what do I have to do to remain in power? is what drives politicians, not necessarily what do I have to do to be good? That's, you know, the politician's job is to stay in power. So I think that's a very good question, one of which I don't have an answer to, but I think understanding that tension is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And then uh, Rosa says the report is a lagging response. Shouldn't yeah. we focus on the preventative behaviors? So, yes, but how do you know what the preventative behaviors are without understanding what happened? 
Yeah. I think that's the challenge that you have is, you you know, is, is, is how do you go, okay, what do we do to prevent this? And you, de- you need to do that, but you also need to understand what actually happens so that you're implementing the correct yeah. behaviors, Rosa, yeah. Well, aren't they always the same? <laughs> the prevention. Well, yeah, that is a good point, yeah. I don't see much, I never see anything different. Yeah. There's only yeah. two findings leadership and culture uh, that those are the two findings and so what what's at the root of that and you mentioned several of them the relationships the listening the uh, the shaming of participants if they dare to bring up information that doesn't go with the uh, mainstream mm-hmm. I have felt it myself many times in organizations they just shame you by uh, saying that you're, you know, you're um, meddling or you're you're going into areas where you have no business. You don't have a PhD in that area. How can you possibly have anything valuable to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So the the one thing I I wonder about is, you know, we talk about leadership and culture a lot, um, particularly in kind of safety conversations. And I kind of, I, I almost wonder if those terms have lost any, if I say actionable meaning. So we kind of go, oh, well, it's because of the culture, but then, well, what do we actually mean about that? And Rosa, I, do you know, I'm super, I, if we go back to the wonderful Ed Shine's work and kind of look at the deeper layers of culture, which are all far more difficult to explore and look at and are very much tied again to social narratives and othering and broad kind of like socio-political issues that I think we don't tackle. We don't understand why don't we change culture or what does actually leadership mean and and, and at an organizational level yes kind of like you can perhaps look at what are the characteristics of great safety leadership and create cultures where people speak up and you can do that, and we've all seen exa- good examples of that, but it happens in isolations and nothing is shifting systemically. So why is that? And I think a lot of that is 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 linked to really broad um, Power. questions of purpose, really, and kind of existential well, conversations. Well, and it boils down to power and, and survival, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Well, Rosa, you, you, you would love chapter five and chapter six in Jill's book, because in chapter five, she spends time looking at what are those mechanisms in place to prevent and respond to these catastrophic events. And your myth is bang on as far as I'm concerned, Jill, where you talk about the cause of accident is human error. So therefore, if we just replace the bad apples, the world again will operate perfectly. And now we get into this whole obsession with blame and blame avoidance and all that sort of stuff. And in chapter six, Jill talks about relationships and how do they contribute to events and our ability to learn and what what myth did you un- uncover in chapter six Jill? that the softer relational issues aren't that important and in each of the myths i explore another disaster so in this case it was the the costa concordia where um 
the captain and I, I might, it's a long time since I wrote the book, so it's quite funny doing this now because I can't remember all the details, but I think um, one of the reasonings for um, taking the divergence that led to the collapse, and I, I forget how many deaths in the, in the 30s, if I remember correctly, is I wanted to make happy both of them because he was trying to make the maitre d' happy yeah. and there was a captain that lived on the island. And that um, and that, that was in a conversation with, with Nippon and Nan that many of you will know. Um, and just that, that phrase just stuck with me. I wanted to make happy both of them. Um, you know, and we go, well, these relationship things, I think actually they're just, when we get to culture and relationship, they're too difficult. So we just don't deal with them. But the myth is that they're not that important. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Mm. And you picked up on the the hero and villain narratives as well, which I thought was really enlightening for me. And how yeah. we seem to kind of split into that. And as you say in Grenfell, we had the rebels, you know, and yes. also you get tagged kind of like that on you, then that label kind of hangs with you for the rest of the rest of the event. And I think also in the Grenfell context, where the myths and narratives kind of first first came to me, I think I wrote a blog about it, um, was actually regarding the firefighters because um, there were massive failures in the response. So there's obviously the failures, the firefighters should never have had to face that, but they also should have been prepared to face a catastrophe of that nature. Um, and there were very large failings in the response. But it becomes very difficult because everybody thinks firefighters are heroic. And when you've got a heroic narrative, it becomes di difficult to inquire, actually, because you're seen as, you know, in, in some way um, piercing that her heroic kind of label. So I, th I think that the hero myth narrative is very strong in terms of inhibiting learning and yeah. robust inquiry, you know. Yeah, yeah, good one. And in your chapter seven, you talk about contextual elements and what myth did you express there? Well, that you can enable systemic change without shifting deeply held assumptions and beliefs, which goes back to for people yeah. that know Shine's work on the deeper levels of culture, is that I th I, it's so difficult, but how do we create safe spaces where we can explore, you know, dissonance? I mean, change requires some level of dissonance and, and understanding um, and how those are impacting and driving behaviors, I think is a very challenging task for anybody but I don't think you create lasting change without without doing that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. all right um Audrey I see that um you've got a point there uh would you like to come on Mike or you just want us to read out your chat Are you there Audrey okay no if not um then I will read um, her chat on the opposite side with proper publicity, the long lag of reporting could remind and refresh public memory for years. Yeah, I think that's, I, I do think that's accurate. Um, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult for the direct communities 
involved and it's such a complex issue because some people wanted to, to remain in the public domain some people you know want to get on with their lives um but yes of course you can and in the case of Grainful there's also a lot of art and plays and things that have happened and and continue to happen post Grainful which do keep it in the public domain I'm all for that but I also know that for certain members who are directly impacted that's hard so yes it is an opportunity that's accurate yeah and then you devote a whole chapter, chapter eight, where you paint a really chilling picture of a system perfectly designed to keep doing what it is doing. And this is at the blunt end of the safety sphere. So what do you see in that painting? Um, so we fail to deal with known issues um, with regulations and governance. So we know that our systems are vulnerable and we don't fix them. And I think in the States, you probably see this with um, the Boeing crash, then we act surprised when something goes wrong, then we spend enormous amounts of time and effort on inquests and inquiries. And in the UK, there's no um, mechanism to assure or ensure that those are either implemented or effective, which is ludicrous to me. I remember when I first found that, that's similar to let's do a, an investigation at an individual in a company and then just literally ignore the findings or leave it up to luck or chance as to whether they're implemented. So we do all this investigation and then don't do anything to ensure that what gets found or the recommendations are implemented. And then we fail to respond to issues raised via scrutiny mechanism. So in fact, in the case of Grenfell, through, through government scrutiny, scrutiny mechanisms, many of the issues related to Grenfell were raised in, in in proper government scrutiny bodies. So the notion of um, cladding um, that was was raised a number of times and also the notion of um, fire response. So there was a previous fire called the Lacknell House Fire where I think it's six people um, died. And one of the findings from that was to change the, or, or train the operators differently around stay put. So stay put is a policy in a fire where, where the um, control room operators tell people to stay in their flat, but it relies on compartmentation working. And in Lacanel, compartmentation broke. The control room operators kept telling people to stay put and they died. And those learnings weren't, impl weren't implemented despite the findings of the inquiry and the same advice was given in Grenfell. So people were told to stay put not to get out until it was too late. So, you know, we failed to respond to those issues. We implement piecemeal water down change, and then this we spin the we've learned rhetoric, and then we repeat the cycle again and again and again. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's so many big issues around the world, and I can just look south of me um, in Canada and just look at gun control and the issues that um, the US are going through and that in terms of trying to deal with known issues, regulations and governance and don't want to pick on the United States because I think every country has got yeah. those sort of things that they're trying to tackle. And I almost talk about these things as um, wicked problems where you, or, you know, the kind of like um, the, the, the mole game where you, you know, you bang on, a, you bang on here and another mole pops up here, you bang on this one, this one pops up as well because we don't know the consequences when we do make regulation governance changes at all. 
what else yeah. is going to emerge of that? And it comes back to this whole idea of entanglement. We just don't know what's going to emerge from that. Well, we don't want to spend all of our time, you know, looking at elected officials and policymakers <laughs> at one end, because I don't know how many of you are in the audience. And if you are in the audience, thank you for joining us. But I do know that there's a lot of safety professionals and folks that are maybe holding safety um, roles in the organizations. So let's take Jill's stuff and let's move this down the safety sphere. And let's go to that company leadership level here. And I'll set that stage for you pragmatic safety professionals, consultants who are present. Let's think of a company's black elephant that you are aware of. So what's a black elephant? Well, a black elephant is a cross between the proverbial elephant in the room and Talib's black swan. It's so big that leaders with formal power and authority know about it, but for whatever reason, choose to ignore it. It's a failure waiting to happen. And when the surprise hits, it will have devastating black swan consequences. So I'd like to explore that with Jill and talk about what advice from your book can you give to make the water visible to deal with a black elephant, not as a piecemeal, but as a real systemic change? So I think um, I, I would recommend kind of looking through the four lenses. So looking from a foundational level, what are the, the factors that are contributing to that? So it could be there's um, something to do with regulations, which is often too, or guidance, um, which is often there's too many procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So look at, well, what, what are those contributing factors at that level? I think um, in terms of what I say in the book is we need to get better at understanding ambiguity. We need to get better at um, living with uncertainty. So I think a lot of the time we use those foundational elements to create false senses of security. And if, you, if you're willing to look at the vulnerabilities, you need to also be willing to stand in the space of uncertainty. Um, I think very critically in terms of the behavioral elements, so that's the foundational, the, the behavioral elements is this notion of welcoming bad news. My editor, he argued with me back and forth. I said, we are not changing the term. He said, you can't welcome back bad news. And I said, we are not changing the term. That's the only argument I had with my copy editor when I was writing the book. He's like, that's not real English. And I was like, you have to learn to welcome bad news. And in fact, I think that um, from a leadership perspective at organizational level, probably the most important thing is, is do you actively welcome bad news so that you understand the vulnerabilities, the real vulnerabilities in your organization? Um, and then ensuring consequences are fairly born after disaster. So I think that's very important. And just culture depending on how it's implemented, can help with that. But the people in the safety domain, that's not kind of a radical notion. Outside of the safety domain, that can be quite radical. Um, and then I think that the in terms of relational things, I think this whole power imbalance is critically important and the narratives that we use to silence. So understanding those. So I think that's super important. So there's both the welcoming bad news, but then also understanding what 
what the power imbalances and narratives are that silence people, I think is super important. Um, and then chapter seven, the willingness to risk losing power. So I think a lot of what keeps everything in place is, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to rebalance power, somebody has to give it up. And I think that's quite an interesting notion. And really creating safe spaces to engage with these complex issues where people can talk about deeply held assumptions and beliefs. So I think that's the frame I would give Rosa. Well, I was just wondering, um, a couple of days ago, I was on a conference call with a client and they were remarking that the um, higher level leaders were very resistant to change, that they were, um, uh, uh, that all the questions they were asking about the process that they were being asked to follow uh, were being questioned. And it struck me, uh, going back to um, Ed Shine's work where he talks about anxiety about change, that a lot of times we misinterpret anxiety for resistance. Yes. And, and we don't really deal with that because uh, I mean, very few people in safety would be uh, educated in psychology or, or to deal with those sorts of issues. And it may seem really subtle, but I think we we really alienate managers and, and leaders when we, uh, uh, when we don't even have to say it. They, they feel it, that they're resisting change rather than dealing with the underlying anxieties, which I, I don't think they're all, uh, they are things that we should examine. Perhaps there's something logical uh, behind uh, what they suspect might go wrong with that particular path. I like that, Rosa, and I think that's kind of like an example of the subtle narratives we use. So almost that that you you know you your managers don't want to change is a narrative that we actually use to silence. And again, I think change lives in the space of dissonance, and that's a very uncomfortable space for humans, and a very uncomfortable space as consultants to create and hold. Um, and and I think a lot of the job of change is holding dissonance in a way that people can manage. So what's the right amount of dissonance? Um, and I think often we don't like that dissonance, so we go back to comfort, which then stops us from, and there's huge amounts. I mean, the, the, the you know, social skills to hold that, and then the, um, personal impacts of holding those space and kind of taking care of and nurturing yourself once you've been holding that space is I think not spoken about or understood perhaps enough. Does that make sense? Oh absolutely I've been there done that. Yeah. So, uh, how have that how have you dealt with that and in, in have you do you have any successful things that have worked for you as, as that you've learned over the years? Uh, so it was, I mean, it was really an existential moment for me. I mean, not actually the fire, because I think, I mean, that was awful, it was awful, but because I've worked in high hazard industries and worked a lot around people that have been involved in catastrophic events, um, that wasn't awful, what was 
awful and existentially really challenging for me was the lack of change. So, you know, 72 people died in the richest borough in one of the richest countries in the world. And I thought that would be um, a real imperative for rapid change, as we see in in high hazard industries. You know, if, if there's a, you know, there is rapid change. They're not perfect, but there is rapid change. And I think I'd expected that. And then um, that was very difficult for me to to deal with emotionally. And frankly, Rosa, I'm I, I I kind of like sometimes I feel I think of myself pre-grainful and I was like this carefree person. And now, but it's I have a choice to engage with it, unlike people who lost direct family members in the fire. So I'm always very conscious I have a choice um, to participate in it at the level that I do. But I just have to manage my well-being. I'm super rigorous around managing my well-being. I'm in therapy. I mm. kind of think, oh, I'm fine now. And then I stop therapy and then I'm a mess again. I meditate. I exercise. I don't drink. I eat healthily. And all of that is because if I'm not well, I won't be able to make the change that I <laughs> promised that I'd make. But that is, it takes rigor, you know. You've really, you really touched my heart. I mean, for you to speak openly about those things. Uh, so much of what I hear, uh, you know, people talking about their victories and, you know, just pushing forward, but it, it isn't like that um, for those of us who, who work in that arena. No. It, it can be crushing and the burnout is real. So I, I applaud that you're talking about it. I applaud that you're Thanks, taking Rosa. it. I know Clara and I talk about that all the time, uh, just amongst ourselves, how draining it can be to be the one speaking truth to power. Um, so thank you for doing that. Mm, thanks, Rosa. Thank you. I think there's Irina, if I'm saying your name incorrectly, do forgive me, but I can see a hand. Is that Rosa's hand or is that Audrey's hand? Uh, I don't know. It's over it's arenas. All right. It could be. Uh, I do see Tom. You're you're back online, so it looks like you dropped out. And we did address your question, but if you want to come online and talk about that, we certainly have time for that. Yeah. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yeah. We did. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really sorry, Sam, that was a classic example, still working. So I, I, I think the point, that, and I didn't hear Jill's response, but I think one of the, the tensions here is that, that people expect change very rapidly, but as a lot of what Jill's been saying recognises, is it's, it is actually difficult and slow to change complex systems genuinely. And I guess, I mean, the, the UK people will be aware of a guy called Trevor Kletz, who always used to say, why organisations forget. But I think mm. actually his issue was that people remember short term, but then the real root cause isn't actually changed. <laughs> they never actually solved the problem. And But what I, the reason I asked my question is that my perception is, and um, the Lacanal fire is a sort of classic example where we'd never even really get the required change because the people who can make the systemic change, whether they're politicians, regulators, influencers, they have actually got a, a time scale that's too short mm -hmm. to change this sort of stuff. Um, and, it, and it's how you keep the balance. And I guess, I mean, I'm now I'm a, a poacher turned gatekeeper in that I've been trying to prevent major accidents in industry and now I work for a regulator. 
And one of my frustrations is that from the regulator's perspective, the, the challenges of being a regulator, managing a regulator, where you've got this tension between the political environment mm. and what you can influence, both with and without guidance. And I think I would differ somewhat in Jill saying, what makes change is the very specific detailed technical guidance that is part of it, but also the, the passion and the interest of individuals, particularly in the UK environment, can make a big difference. You know, if, if people understand things and feel ownership, they can make a change. And, um, and there's an author who looks at the role of regulators and part of its enforcement, but part of its influencing in education. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really what Jill's been touching on, that it's, it's really hard to make these changes. But one of the challenges, and I can almost, you know, I was coming in on the end of the conversation between Rosa and Jill about the passion here, is that the people who actually want to change this stuff can almost be excluded by the rest of the world. You know, you're still worrying about Grenfell. And on a, on a if not daily, a weekly basis, I will be saying to the leadership of the organisation where I work, but Grenfell tells us this matter, this matters. We need to get this right. And the the leadership and the senior management is like, why are you telling me about Grenfell? You work yeah. for a different industry in a different, why are you using the example of Grenfell? And you and you go back and say, and um, Abba Fant taught us the same incident. Yeah. And how come we forgot Summerlands? You know, let's think, of, we have got to remember this stuff, but a lot of it comes down to individual passion personal responsibility um and also a couple a couple of things maybe tom that but that that don't repeat what i said earlier so i, I think one of the so so i would say regulators drive foundational change but i wouldn't say that's the same as systemic change that can lead to systemic change but it does and i think you need you, you need a combination of things to drive systemic change one of the problems is I think regulators, and we saw this post Grenfell, is you politically need to be seen to be doing something. So you change regulations. And then that, in the case of Grenfell, for which I won't go into a lot of detail, but had unintended consequences and led to a big problem in the housing market because they required people to have a certificate mm -hmm. to prove that the outside of their buildings were safe. And then it transpired that they were thousands and thousands and thousands of unsafe buildings so people got stuck in flats that they can't sell so you know that's an example of kind of like reactive and again politically you need to be seen to doing something the tool that you have as a regulator is regulations so you change regulations and don't think of unintended consequences so i think there's both that the the, the time lag in terms of we forget but then there's also the time lag in terms of making reactive, like the bravery of saying we're not going to do anything yet, which maybe sometimes is the right thing for regulators to do, but then the public won't yeah. want that. So I think it's very, very, very complex at that level. I think the one thing for me, um, which is where is the the power I end the book on what I call the democratization of change. So I think social media and the, the way that the world is now far more transparent and open means that there is more of an ability to impact change um, through campaigning and 
I think that, you know, it's like, so kind of like where I find hope is, okay, there's massive complexities in, in government and yes, they should do whatever they can do, but we shouldn't rely on that to enable systemic change. And we maybe all have a role to play in that, whatever that may be, but that, yeah, I think often we kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, but we think we can't make a difference, but we can. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's coming out from your comments, well, and it's, again, I'm, I'm hearing it through a particular lens, but one of the tensions that I see is we talk about systemic change, and, and I think I know what you mean, and we'd all agree about that. Maybe where we disagree or don't realise, I guess, that there's two very different paradigms. One is that the system's mechanistic, that it's actually very simple control from top to bottom. And the other is that actually it's a complex world. Well, exactly. And, and you've you've clearly recognized that. And I think you've recognized that, but I don't think a lot of people really understand the way to influence mm -hmm. a complex system. And, no. and you're, you're right, actually, the sort of social media pressure groups, all that means that it's easier to get change than perhaps it used to be. But in the old world, there were some mechanistic things which were much more powerful. You know, unions were much more powerful. Most workplaces were unionized. Most workers were employees. That's not the case anymore exactly. at all. Exactly. You know, and that alters power dynamics. Exactly. You know, the way which you I think is a huge. It's very different. Yeah. And, and I huge. think another, yeah, another simple thing that comes out from of Grenfell is if you imagine the, the number of companies and individuals and skills involved in building Grenfell originally you probably had you know two or three engineering disciplines an architect and one company and now when it comes to simply replacing the cladding you've got you know three different design companies six different regulatory authorities and the trades are all completely different and the paradigm is that we're not using very skilled people and we employ them as if they're not very skilled but a lot of the details on Grenfell cladding would have been solved if and, and Gary's kind of diagram was right that actually Grenfell wouldn't have happened if the technicians doing the work had been really conscientious and done the right thing it flashed up the back of the insulation because it wasn't done by people who got pride in their job the, the, the initial flame went through the window frame because it'd been badly sealed the window frames didn't fit it and I think, you know, it's, it's important. Well, the design didn't have cavity barriers, so you'd have to go back to no, architects. There, there, but there are design I'm, things, but, yeah. but there's this balance. And yeah, we could get into this. So, but I think it's yeah. just the whole spectrum matters, particularly in complex exactly. systems. That's, exactly. I mean, exactly. I think what you I mean, that is what I argue shows. in the book is the whole, is the whole thing. The, the, one, um, the, the, the one thing perhaps, uh, no, I won't because of time. I was going to go into another thing, but I'm conscious of time, Gary. So I'll hand back to you. But thank you, Tom. I agree with you on all of the above. Thanks, Tom. Wow, sorry, to, you... sorry to step out. That's very no, rude. it's great. Oh, yeah. Super great. Apology. Don't well, it's apologize. Great. No, it's great to know that we have somebody from the blunt end of the spear, Tom. So I'm happy to have you join us anytime. Um, you also learned a lot about in your book about the human aspects of change. Mm. So can't you share a few things about that? Well, I think I've spoken a little bit. I mean, one of the one of the things that I talk about in the book and spoke a little bit to Rosa about it is I think grief is the what I call the transformative power of grief is very interesting phenomenon. And, and to go back to Tom's point is 
after disasters, you get these communities that are really, really, really impact that end up campaigning for change. So you see that I don't, I, again, I'm going to give use UK examples, excuse my ignorance, but um, well, actually in Boeing, when you see the, the hearings with the families from Boeing and in, in America, for example, speaking and campaigning for change, here you see Hillsborough that will just for decades and decades not give up and go, we need mm. change, we need change, we need change. And I think that um, there's a trans transformative power um, that I don't think we we really understand um, or tap into sufficiently, perhaps in terms of driving change post disasters, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then I think it's also, I, I spoke earlier about kind of the disruptive power of kindness. I mean, I think I've, I think we kind of like think of change as this awful, hard driving process. Again, you know, going back to the previous conversation, it's it's often for me like we've got this um, linear command and control mindset and we are laying that onto this complex world. And that's where a lot of the problems come from. And I think one of the impacts of that kind of paradigm clash, if you like, is we're just horrible. And I think, you know, like like life is just super stressful. And I think perhaps simply being kind and listening and being gentle and nurturing can create as much disruption as, I don't know, other things that we typically turn to. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very interested in, in that yeah. world. Yeah, of course. Well, it is the top of the hour. And I told Jill, like, this hour goes by really, really fast, and it has. Very um, interesting conversation. <laughs> so I always, as everybody know, like to ask the author your three takeaways that you would like to leave the viewers. What would they be? I'm looking at what I wrote, and you, I told you I'd change my mind. I think the the first thing is really this kind of like the paradigm is stop putting this command control linear, the world is predictable paradigm onto a complex world and learn how to actually engage with the world as it is um, and, and develop those, those skills. Um, and bust the myth that the, the blunt end will guarantee safe outcomes, you know, it takes all of us, not just the regulators over there, okay, the regulations have changed, now everything's fixed. And then I think the final one, which I'll change is just be kind, both, both to ourselves and to each other, because we're all doing our best. And compassion and humility. And I think we don't do enough of that in the world in general. Yeah, I think those are three really, really good takeaways. Uh, now, uh, just for some added information, um, you developed um, a podcast, I understand, right after you wrote the book. And uh, what Tamara is going to do is add that information at the, when, when tomorrow, when you publish the, U, the YouTube, you'll add that information there. So I recommend that uh, when you watch the YouTube, that you also have a look and listen to the podcast on that one there. So on that note, I'm going to pass it over to you tomorrow. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Gary. And thank you, Jill. This is a great session. I hope everybody uh, really enjoyed their time here. And yes, I will uh, post the link to the podcast 
um, on the YouTube, as well as in the email that people will be getting up for the on-demand version. So thank you everybody for joining us and being part of the Safepedia community. It's great. Okay, thanks everybody and see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.